Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, September 6th. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about her interview with Joe Biden's favorite pollster, John Anzalone. Anzo, as he's known among the Biden crew, says this midterm election is the most unique he's ever seen. Tara explains why. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. In about eight more Tuesdays, I think, uh, it's election day. And if we're talking midterm politics, we're talking with Tara Palmieri. How are you doing, Tara? Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Of course. How was your birthday? It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask you for details, but I hope you stayed up late. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this Q&A you did with John Anzalone. For people who don't know who this is, he is a Democratic pollster, but he's also been Biden's pollster for a very long time, like decades. And he, as you wrote on Puck, has his hand, you know, not just in Biden world, but he's working on a ton of midterm races, governor's races in, in battleground states like Michigan and Nevada. And so he's got all of this insight and texture into what's happening on the ground right now with Democrats and the electorate at large. What did John say about why the midterms are way closer than they should be in any other year? you know, with the Democrat in the White House, Republicans should be up in the generic ballot. They should be cruising. They're not. It's tied. Republicans still have an edge, obviously. But what's his diagnosis of the midterm races right now? He believes that everyone underestimated the impact that the overturning of Roe versus Wade decision would have on this midterm. He thinks it's been a huge cataclysmic wave that has put Republicans on the defensive. He also thinks it's coupled with the fact that 
Democrats finally have something to talk about. I mean, they were sort of seen as the party that wasn't able to get shit done. They finally passed a few bills all around the same time in July after Roe was overturned with the Dobbs decision. And it's just been a real game changer. And he said, I thought it was going to play a minor role, but it's played a really big role. And it's just coming up in all of his polling. And he says, actually, these like these bills that Biden has passed, like the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously a lot of progressives thought was, you know, too thin of a of a bill for their agenda demands and, and was nothing compared to the Build Back Better that they had first been touting this transformational FDR like bill. But actually, it's just given Democrats something to talk about. You know, it's just been a succession of a lot of passing of legislation and the rap that Democrats had was they were too disorganized to get shit done. So it gives them something to talk about. And then also, you know, Republicans are trying to hit Democrats right now on crime and saying they're soft on crime and the inflation and fuel. But fuel prices are dropping. Inflation is still terrible. And that's definitely a weakness for Democrats. But I think that they're spending so much time on the defensive with Roe and they have their own money issues that it's been a more advantageous season for Democrats than anyone could have predicted, including John, who said, you know, I thought this was going to be the worst bloodbath of all time for Democrats. The polling industry has its flaws, but I do appreciate the fact that a lot of pollsters admit when things change. They like, you know, they're not like pundits who come out with like hot takes and they're like, this will help Democrats or this won't hurt Democrats. They're just sort of constantly watching and watching see things shift. And I appreciate that he said in your interview that like, actually, I didn't think out of the gate that the Dobbs ruling would have the impact it did in terms of registering Democrats and women in particular. And because I was, I was sort of the same. I mean, in the aftermath of that uh, ruling, polls asked the question, like, are you more likely to vote in November now that Roe v. Wade isn't the law of the land? And like Democrats, young Democrats and women said, yeah, but like you don't, that doesn't mean anything until they actually go vote. You can tell a pollster you're going to vote uh, and then not show up. But the numbers have shown, and Tom Bonnier, who's a, a Democratic data guy, has a New York Times op-ed out about this, that like women are raging in lots of states and signing up in huge numbers and outpacing registrations among other demos. And so what in particular did he say that the abortion ruling did? Like, what was the specific impact in his mind? Well, he has an interesting point. He thinks that it's made Republican candidates seem more radical because the timing of the ruling was, well, the time when the, the ruling was leaked was in May, okay? May 2nd, I believe the ruling was leaked in Politico. And it was like at the height of the Republican primary season. And so you have all these Republican candidates from like Tudor Dixon in Michigan to Blake Masters in Arizona, like purple states, you could say, right? They're swing states. And they're being asked about their positions on abortion. And they're going to the far right of their party to win a primary saying, you know, she was asked, do you support it? In cases of rape and abortion, she was like, no, I do not. And it's like, he's saying that that signals to voters too, like these people might be extreme on all issues if they would be that hardcore when he he knows and we know that they were definitely just playing to the Republican base because that's what they needed to win their primary. But now it's coming back to haunt them in the general election. That's what he thinks is happening right now on Roe. That's fascinating. What an interesting take. Like, I think the first Politico story about the Alito opinion was May. And then the actual ruling was June. And you're right, like between late April and like June is like the peak of Republican primary season. So you had like like a full 
month or six weeks of Republicans taking certain positions on this. And wow, I didn't even think about that. Listen, he's a Democratic pollster, you know, works for Biden. It's got to yeah. sound like a fanboy in a lot of ways for the party, right? Yeah. Uh, or, else the, or else the, you know, jobs are going to dry up. But he, you know, he makes some decent points that like Republicans really haven't laid out what their policy is. And so in a way, they've been a bit like they've really leaned into crime, but they haven't been able to. I've talked to a lot of Republican strategists who are just like, Ugh, we don't want to be talking about Mar-a-Lago right now. It's not our, you know, we don't want to be defending Trump. Like, we just need to get out there on the ground with our messaging. And, you know, between Roe and the search on Mar-a-Lago, they're feeling very flat-footed right now. And it's just not the position that they thought they were going to be in. One thing that John said, he said, we're in the most unique election cycle in my 30 years of working in politics. He's like, I literally went from saying it was the worst election cycle I've ever seen to now seeing it as one of the most competitive election cycles I've ever seen. You know, it's crazy. He's like, Republicans should be 10 plus on the generic ballot advantage, but they're dead even. That jumped out of me from your conversation too. Like I remember in 2017 or 2018, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about a lot of the Democratic enthusiasm in 2018 and married it with like all these like political science papers and this historical research, basically saying like, it is just a fundamental rule of midterm elections that the party in power loses seats. And the generic ballot number is really baked in starting in like February of a midterm year. And this is a problem that that I've always had as a political journalist is like you look to the past for like answers and, and think it can have some kind of predictive power. And like sometimes it does. A lot of times it just doesn't. And the Trump era really scrambled our expectations about what can happen in elections. And one of those things is that enthusiasm is just up on both sides. We saw this in 2018, I believe, when Trump was in power, they gained seats in the Senate. And then we saw it again in 2020 when Trump is still in power and you think he's going to lose by a lot. And then Democrats end up losing seats in the House. And so it's just like enthusiasm and voter registration is like very high on the Democratic side too. You know, Republicans, yes, are enthused. But I do want to ask when we come back after the break about what specifically some of these Biden bills that he's passed, what kind of impact they're having. Tara, I want to ask you what John said about Biden in 2024 and also Trump 2024. Um, but real quick, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. And I've been saying like with infrastructure and the IRA, Democrats won't see the impact of this for a long time or like voters won't see the impact. You know, if you're building a highway or you are installing electric vehicle chargers or greening the economy, like those are long tail things that Americans won't really see for a few years. John is saying, and you're saying here, that it's more about the image of momentum, that Democrats can grab things to put in their ads and their paid media in various races that compared to six months ago, when it felt like Biden was listless and Democrats were like checked out and disappointed and most people don't want to run again, that all the bills that have passed, CHIPS, Inflation Reduction Act, the bill that's helping veterans, like all of that stuff just gives Biden momentum. And now he's on offense. And there's just like this sort of ambient feeling that comes from that, that Democrats like, okay, we got something to do. We're working here. Is that right? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Like they needed something to talk about. Um, they were being hit as like ineffectual, squabbling within their own party. They just needed to show something. I mean, yes, they had, they finally got infrastructure a week to happen, but that happened so long ago. In fact, like could have happened in better timing over the summer, I think. 
you know, leading up into the fall. They're out. They're not in session. August, they're doing town halls. They're talking to people. Ads are starting to run more aggressively in the fall. And they've got talking points, which they really didn't have before. And, you know, a lot of people say that it might have something to do with just gas prices, that Biden's approval ratings, he pointed out, were going up one point every week, right? And you were saying, well, some people think that might be gas prices might just be related to that. But Maybe it is, but like that's still a sign that they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. If gas prices are coming down, even if it's not directly correlated to presidential approval, it's bundled with the notion that inflation might be leveling off and that prices might be coming down a little bit here and there. And that sort of plugs into just a larger narrative of they're finally getting things done. Changing subjects real quick to to Biden and his the will he or won't he. The biggest question in politics, honestly, like will Biden run again? John got a little prickly when you asked him about this stuff. What's his take (laughs) on Biden running? Yeah, I mean, I was like, what numbers would he need to see to run again, right? I mean, I think everybody wants to know that. And his polling is still really low. I think ultimately, like, Biden is a client, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he's also like, he's on the the blue team. Like, he doesn't want to show his cards, you know? Like, so he's not going to tell you, like, what Biden's numbers are. Exactly. It makes perfect sense that he wouldn't want to give that up. He says, there's not a calculus or diagnostic in my head or anyone's head about what that means in terms of what numbers Biden would need to see to run again. Um, And he just said he deserves to run for re-election. So, you know, I asked him too, like, how does he stack up against some of the Republicans right now? Is there anyone that's stronger, weaker than Trump? He says he hasn't tested and that he couldn't go there. But I would have liked to get a little bit more out of him on that. But I think it's still, it's probably a little too close to home in terms of who he's working for. Yeah, no, I mean, Biden has his kitchen cabinet of people. I think John is in that world. But he's, they're not going to say what he's thinking. Obviously, I mean, even if I kind of am of the mind, if Biden chooses not to run again, the succession of things that he's passed actually gives him license to walk out on top. Like like John Elway wins the Super Bowl and he's like, peace, like I'm retiring. You know, like he has accomplished huge things. He might not be like FDR transformational. Maybe he will be in the long run. But if that's the case and maybe he's thinking that, like he still needs to not become a lame duck. So they're just going to keep projecting as long as they can, I think. The fear was that after the election, it would be such a dark reckoning for the Democratic Party, which is what it felt like just a few months ago, right? That they would need new leadership, that it would be insane to keep Biden as the person on their ticket. But that might not be the case now. Also, there's an interesting thing happening with the polls. like, And this, this gets to another like rule of the midterm elections. Presidential approval rating traditionally correlates with how Democrats perform in competitive elections. And in other words, like Biden's approval rating, which by the way, has meaningfully jumped from a little over a month ago from about 37.9% to 42.9%. Like that's a, that's a big shift. And Biden right now is back higher in the polls than Donald Trump was at this point in his presidency by a little bit. Um, But if Biden's at 42% approval, according to 538, you would think that in Georgia, Raphael Warnock would only be like at 43%, but he's not. Like Warnock's like running, he's outrunning Biden. Um, Fetterman's outrunning Biden. They all are. They're all outrunning Biden. And I think like voters, Democrats in particular, are like understand now that everyone like is attuned to politics (laughs) um, that statewide elections matter, governor's races matter, local elections matter. Um, You know, young people in particular are more interested in in local elections and national um, because they think it's more, relevant and consequential. But it does feel like voters are able to separate how they feel about the president from how they feel about individual races because they just understand the stakes, it feels like, you know, especially since 2015 and 2016, that 
we need to send Mark Kelly back to the Senate. We can't sit out the midterms and be bored, like even if we don't really like Joe Biden. I think politics is changing a little bit. Like people are able to like separate the president from a bunch of individual candidates. Another sort of interesting point that he made is that while Biden's numbers are bouncing and he's coming back and you would expect Trump as a former president to get a bounce after he leaves office, right? Instead, his favorables are declining, which is also interesting, especially if there's a matchup. And that's coming on the heels of the January 6th committee, the Mar-a-Lago search. That's the last thing I want to ask you, Tara, actually, is you asked John, how are these, uh, how's this FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, the January 6th committee? These are consequential things, but sometimes they also feel like they are the domain of like the Beltway and like cable news, but like, are they breaking through to people? What did he say about the impact of those investigations on Trump's approval? Well, he's saying that Trump's approval rating is declining and that when most would expect a former president to get a bounce, right? That's some evidence that this, the January 6th committee is actually breaking through, right? And the Mar-a-Lago raid is breaking through. He says that he's seeing a lot of momentum for third-party candidates. And he says, you're going to see a lot more voters for third-party candidates this selection. Like in state and like house races and things like that? He didn't specify, but he just said he, he thought that he would see third-party candidates seeing a real uptick from Republicans and independent-minded Republicans or just independents leaning that way who are just tired of the party. He says that it's kind of reinforcing what they already felt about Donald Trump. He said, I think we're going to see a lot more third-party candidate votes this cycle because of people disgruntled with Trump. I would be fascinated to see if that if that plays out in governor's races and, and wherever. I mean, like this was one of Biden's strengths in 2020 was making sure that those maybe swingy voters who would sit out an election, those former Republicans who might vote for a third-party candidate, voted for him. And Hillary didn't do that. She thought that Trump was unelectable. It turns out a lot of people didn't like Hillary either. Their their unfaves were about the same heading into the election. This gets whitewashed. Like, Hillary was just as unpopular as Trump heading into election day. And so people voted for Evan McMullen and people voted for Jill Stein and some people just didn't vote. And so that's like a consequence of... Um, of Trump still. I do think some of the Senate Democratic candidates have done a good job with this. Mark Kelly is a good example of, of making sure that swingy, persuadable Republicans, former Republicans, like vote for the Democrat. Because if those third party voters are sitting out, I mean, I, I don't think that helps Democrats uh, at all. That's why you don't have any Democrats now saying defund the police. I mean, you have some, but not any like frontline Democrats going anywhere near that. In fact, they're saying fund the police. They've completely switched it. It's like Tim Ryan sounds like a Republican when you hear him on the trail in Ohio. <laughs> really, right? Like it's, they're really playing the center. The defund message is, is fully dead uh, as <laughs> uh, on the left, I think. Um, anyway, Tara, thank you so much. Um, thank you for uh, doing the pod after your celebration this weekend. Um, hopefully you don't have a hangover too bad. You know, I don't work for the month after my birthday <laughs> like a true diva, so That's you're lovely. welcome. All right, thanks, Tara. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 